Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, we are so excited to welcome, to re-welcome Colin Dickey, uh, who's returning here to Skylight Books. Colin is the author of Cranioclepti, Grave Robbing, and the Search for Genius, and um, his newest book right now, which is The Afterlifes of Saints. Um, his fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Lapham's Quarterly, Cabinet, Tri-Quarterly, and the Santa Monica Review. He is also co-editor with Nicole Antibi and Robbie Herbst of Failure, Experiments, and Aesthetic and Social Practices. Tonight, he's here with his brand new book, Afterlife of Saints. Um, in Afterlives of Saints, Colin presents us with a history of faith as told through some of the strangest stories of the saints. The saints who murder, saints who gouge their own eyes out <laughs> and hold them out for inspection, saints who minister to the petty and the bizarre and the maligned. Um, uh, the Los Angeles Review today, uh, uh, which calls the book Seductive, a welcome revision like Chaucer, uh, had a, a great essay, um, if, you, if you saw it at all, which I think I just found my newest favorite saint on the entire planet, which is Marjorie Kemp, is that how you say her name? Who is the patron saint of those who cry in public. <laughs> so excited about that. Um, Booklist called the book an unusual and quite fascinating collection of tales. Please help me welcome Colin Dickey. Thanks. Um, hey, thanks everybody who I browbeat to come out here and the three people that I don't actually know here. But um, um, okay, does this work? Is that is that better? So um, I think I, I'm I, I'm gonna read two sort of short things. The the first one is. Um, on St. Lawrence, and then um, you have your choice, since this is like a bookstore, um, I can either read one about uh, libraries or about sexy books. Um, do we? Libraries. Wow, wow. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go with Vanessa's suggestion. Um, okay, cool, the, um, so this is, this is Lawrence. This is, um, probably one of the, the earliest essays that I wrote for this and, and the, the moment at which I sort of understood what I was doing with, with these things. So that's, that's why it seemed appropriate. <clears throat> Back in Jesuit high school, every day in chemistry, our teacher would begin class with a reading of the day's saint. He had a small book of feast days that he kept in his breast pocket, one of those cheap staple-bound books you used to be able to buy in grocery store checkout lines, and would read in his stilted Texas accent of the martyrs and persecutions of the early church. To this day, I remember his voice quite clearly, but from a year of feast days, the only saint I remember is Lawrence. A deacon under Pope Sixtus II in the third century, Lawrence was martyred during the Roman Emperor Valerian's persecutions in 258, and according to legend, was executed on a gridiron over an open flame. 
As he was being burned alive, so the story goes, he cried out to his tormentors, this side is done, turn me over and have a bite. At this, the whole class burst into laughter, and I remember our teacher's grim face as he looked up at us, quietly apoplectic at our sacrilege, and said dryly, you don't laugh at that. We're talking about a man dying here. That's not funny. But of course it is funny. It's not for nothing that Lawrence is recognized now as the patron saint of comedians. Lawrence is the trickster saint, the buffoon, the clown. After Pope Sixtus was executed, Valerian demanded that Lawrence turn over the treasury of the church. Lawrence instead gave away all of the church's property and then brought Valerian a group of blind, crippled, and homeless men, telling the Roman emperor that these were the true treasures of the church. Sure, this isn't laugh out loud funny, but still. My chemistry teacher snapped at us because he, like so many believers, conflated the sacred and the solemn. Patriarchal religions like Christianity tend to be like this. The French philosopher and atheist Georges Bataille points out that no one ever laughs in the Gospels. The good news may be joyous, but it's not funny. But in other religions, laughter is integral. The anthropologist Bird Gibbons writes, many native traditions held clowns and tricksters as essential to any contact with the sacred. People could not pray until they had laughed because laughter opens and frees from rigid preconception. Humans had to have tricksters within the most sacred ceremonies for fear that they forget the sacred comes through upset, reversal, surprise. The trickster in most native traditions is essential to creation, to birth. Because of this, Lawrence seems to me a saint imported from another religion, closer to Coyote or Raven than to Stephen or Catherine. At the moment of his death is this sudden reversal. With one joke, he takes the power back from his torturers, and the moment breaks open. In our laughter, we understand a little more about life and death. Bataille also writes that uncontrolled laughter brings us to the edge of an abyss, a stage of rupture, of letting go of things. And if Bataille reminds us that behind laughter lies death, Lawrence reminds us that to go willingly to your own execution is to laugh at death, and to laugh at death is also to laugh. Like most martyrs, Lawrence has multiple patronages. He protects not just comedians, but also students, as well as Rome and Rotterdam, Ca Canada and Sri Lanka. Perhaps most bizarrely, perhaps even disturbing, he is the patron saint of barbecues. <laughs> in Christian iconography, saints are usually depicted with the instruments of their torture, as with Catherine in her wheel or Sebastian impaled by arrows. And so Lawrence is often seen holding a grill, sometimes balanced on his shoulder, the instrument of his death used to distinguish images of him from the other martyrs. But over the centuries, this grill has gone from being Lawrence's mode of death to his primary hobby. There's Lawrence, the guy with the grill, always up for a backyard get-together, always there to bless your Super Bowl party. How does this happen? How do torture and recreation get so casually commingled? Turns out to be somewhat common among Christian martyrs, and Lawrence is not the only saint who suffered such bizarre distortions. Agatha's torture included having her breasts cut off, and she is commonly depicted as holding those breasts on a tray before her. But the laity didn't always recognize these tanned lumps as breasts. They were misread often enough, both as bells and loaves of bread, that she has become the patron saint of Belfort and bakers. <laughs> and then there's Bartholomew, flayed alive, who holds, in addition to his own skin, the tool used to cut that skin off, a tool that sort of looks like a cheese cutter, so Florentine cheese merchants took Bartholomew as their patron. <laughs> 
These corruptions happen from the bottom up, from the uneducated and working classes adrift in a world of subsistence and hardship, searching for patrons to aid them. In search of solace, they find these bizarre images of disembodied torture and do their best to make sense of them. It's not that the image of Lawrence with a gridiron doesn't tell a story, but you have to already know that story in order to recognize it. Seeing a painting of an otherwise healthy looking man holding a grill means nothing without some context. The image of the saint works like a parable. It doesn't tell a so story so much as hide it. When asked about the parables by his disciples, Jesus tells them bluntly, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them, meaning the unbelievers. He goes on, whoever has, will be, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though looking, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. Or, as Kafka put it, all these parables really set out to say merely that the incomprehensible is incomprehensible, and we know that already. <laughs> The image of Lawrence and his gridiron is a parable in the sense that only the self-selecting few who already know his story recognize it in such an incomprehensible image. It is those who don't know the story of Lawrence who misread it as a barbecue rather than torture, doing their best to make sense of a visual parable. They look but do not see. It's perhaps because of this inherent ambiguity that images were always distrusted in the early church. Inheriting the legacy of the Hebraic tradition and its second commandment forbidding graven images, early Christians thought pictures inherently untrustworthy, lacking the rock-solid truth of words, and banned them accordingly. It wasn't until 600, 700 years after Lawrence's death that this changed with Cyrenius the iconoclast. The Bishop of Marseilles, Serenius, had found his recently converted flock making images of Jesus and he destroyed them. When Pope Gregory the Great got word of this, he sent a long letter praising Serenius's zeal but telling him to leave the images alone since those who do not know letters may at least read by seeing on the walls what they are unable to read in books. With that stroke, a centuries-old ban on image making was ended and the floodgates opened. For Gregory, images are books for the illiterate, but if so, they are a curious kind of book, one whose meaning is strangely open to interpretation, in which the poor and the illiterate have been free to adapt the ambiguous images adorning churches in whatever manner they might that will give them solace or hope. It is here in these misinterpretations that the odd patronages of the saint that Catholicism reveals its folk aspect, its native traditions and local customs. It is here that St. Lawrence reigns, his trickster laugh stretching the world beyond the humorlessness of the gospel truth and fundamentalism. On the other side of orthodoxy lies this legacy of distortion and expansion where we look and do not see, yet see something new, something else entirely. So. Yeah, okay, 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 cool. We'll do one more. Okay. Okay. Just let me know. Okay. <clears throat> Lost in the limitless labyrinth of books is Teresa. Born in March 1515 in Avia, she was born for reading and as a young girl read incessantly. I do not believe I was ever happy if I had not a new book, she writes in the opening of her autobiography. She learned this love from her mother, who was fond of chivalric romances and always made time for her children to read. Teresa's father disapproved, thought it a waste of time, a corrupting of his children's minds. Teresa and her siblings had to keep the reading a secret. She began to call it an addiction, her little fault. She read in the quiet of dark spaces, much like the young Marcel Proust, who centuries later described seeking out the dim coolness of his room to evade his family and read in secret. 
In the lives of the saints, she found an early love of martyrdom, and when she was seven, she and her brother ran away from home to be martyred at the hands of the Moors, only to be returned home by her uncle. Perhaps her father was right. Reading was dangerous, at least for someone like Teresa. Under the thrall of her emotions, a love of books went hand in hand with a love of death. At the same time, Teresa found no fault with her reading. It did not seem wicked to me, she wrote many years later in her autobiography, to waste many hours of the day and the night on this vain occupation, even though I had to keep it secret from my father. Even as an adult writing of those times, she saw in retrospect the vices of reading, how it began to chill my desires and lead me astray in other aspects as well. What to make of a book that begins with the perils of reading? Should we put it down, go no further? To keep reading, it seems, is to implicate ourselves. It is our little fault that drives us on, our vain occupation, our addiction. We may read, but to read Teresa's autobiography is already to be an interloper, to trespass into a world you've been warned against. She doesn't want us here, even as she beckons us in to come in. Teresa's is a strange book, a book with no place for a reader. Her mother died when Teresa was 12, and she fell even further under the sway of her romances. When she was 15, her father placed her in a convent. There she found her calling, despite being plagued in her early years by serious health problems. Under the direction of a Franciscan, Peter of Alcantara, she sent out in 1560 to found a Carmelite convent in Avia. Her convent brought back the old order, reinstating flagellation and discalcation, the forbidding of the wearing of shoes. And from 1567 to 1576, Teresa set up convents of discalced Carmelites throughout Spain. Around the same time, she was asked by her confessor, Pedro Ibanez, to record the events of her conversion, a record that became her autobiography. In the century since, it has become the most widely, book, wide, re, <clears throat> widely read book in Spanish after Don Quixote, which first appeared only 35 years after Teresa wrote her autobiography. Like Cervantes' masterpiece, Teresa's autobiography is about the dangers of reading. Cervantes' Quixote is poisoned by the same chivalric romances that Teresa read as a child. He sells his estate to buy more and more books until they finally drive him mad, and he begins a quest not unlike that attempted by Teresa when she was seven. Teresa's story caught like wildfire. It may have been about the dangers of reading, written for a private audience, but that hasn't stopped the thousands who have flocked to it. After all, we want to eavesdrop. We want to read what is forbidden in the dim coolness of private rooms. We want to be affected by the wickedness of the book, to share in Teresa's little addiction, to succumb to Quixote's madness. Teresa's life is proof that she finally triumphed over this vice, reformed her ways, and followed Christ, but traces of her love remain, love of reading remain all over her autobiography. In a book that opens with a scene of reading, she recalls with bitterness how her confessor removed all the books in Spanish from the convent. I felt it deeply because some of them gave me recreation, and I could not go on reading them, since now I only had them in Latin. Later, she calls Christ himself a veritable book in which I have read the truth. Hers may be a story about God, but it is told as an allegory of the reader and the writer. Her writing is often chaotic. She asks, asks permission before speaking. She loses herself on tangents before returning to a half-remembered topic, and at times she's repetitive. I seem to have wandered from my subjects, she says more than a few times. At times she supplicates herself abjectly before her confessor. At other times she reprimands him for a dim understanding of Christ. Through all of this, she seems to acknowledge that the book will have no editor and that she will never look back on what she's written. And she's not bothered by this. Like that of a 19th century spirit medium, Teresa's is an automatic writing. 
We have long since lost the ability to see the art in this. In, this tw in the 21st century, we are too used to the idea that the work of art must have a holistic and unified effect, that it must be perfect. Even contemporary writers who might emulate such chaos, Nabokov in Pale Fire, for example, do so deliberately with extreme calculation. The better corollary to Teresa would be writers like Gerard de Naval and Antonin Artaud. Like Artaud's works, Teresa's autobiographies come alive in its madness, though madness is not the right word for many of these writers. Ecstatic is better. Writing that doesn't tell a story or impress an idea so much as it records the simple alchemy of putting pen to paper. Ultimately, Teresa's autobiography is a book about the act of writing itself. I see so much perdition in this world, she writes, that even if my writing has no other effect than to wary this hand that wields the pen, it brings me some comfort. Teresa's autobiography is a strange mixture in which she writes of the dangers of reading and the pleasures of writing. Like Gregory or Radigan, Teresa's work comes alive when it breaks against itself, when its sutures rupture and break, when something unintended shows through. This kind of writing is always vulnerable, and readers and commentators always want to reduce it to something it's not. The danger is in making her sane, in reading the work as a holistic piece of art. The error would be to read it as complete, a masterpiece. Doing so, as many have, is to read her ecstasy in the most banal of ways. Many outside of Spain know her through Bernini's famous sculpture, her head thrown back, her mouth agape, as a cherub hovers above her with an arrow. <clears throat> Bernini's sculpture depicts perhaps the most famous moment in Teresa's autobiography, a description of an ecstatic vision that comes later in the book. In his hands I saw a great golden spear, and at the iron tip there appeared to be a point of fire. This he plunged into my heart several times so that it penetrated to my entrails. When he pulled it out, I felt that he took them with it and left me utterly consumed by the great love of God. The pain was so severe that it made me utter several moans. The sweetness caused by this intense pain is so extreme that one cannot possibly wish it to cease. Nor is one's soul then content with anything but God. This is not a physical pain, but a spiritual pain, though the body has some share in it, even a considerable share. Whatever was happening in Teresa's mind and in her body as this experience was taking place, most modern commentators have only one, seen only one possible explanation. Marie Bonaparte, a practicing psychoanalyst and a friend of Freud, who was at the time measuring the distance between the clitoris and the vagina in 250 women, spoke for many readers when she declared unequivocally that Teresa's revelation was nothing more than a, quote, violent venereal orgasm. Bonaparte was something of a literalist, to be sure, but she makes plain the problem, the dangers in reading Teresa. To read her and see only sex, as we have been conditioned to do, is the same error as reading her and ignoring sexuality altogether. One understands why Teresa tells us how she earnestly begged the Lord, grant me no more favors if they must have outward and visible signs. To see a saint in rapture is to misunderstand, and to read her ecstasy is to misread. Perhaps there was some divine accession to her request when she died in October of 1582, just as Catholic countries were switching from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, a realignment that necessitated the loss of October 5 through 14. Thus she left the earth sometime between the night of October 4 and the morning of October 15th in those strange, invisible days of history. Bernini's genius is in the massive cloak that covers Teresa so that only her face and hands are visible. Everything else lies below the surface, lost in those endless folds. In there somewhere is the ecstasy of writing, the relationship of reader and writer. You may guess at its contours, but you will never know its shape. It is under the folds of such a cloak that the perfect book and the perfect library lie, hidden, shapeless, but somehow moving 
somehow alive. Thanks. So, yeah. I might have said that I'm getting over a cold, so if I sounded weird throughout the entire thing, that's, that's where that came from. Um, but anyways, yeah, I don't know if people have any questions or not, or... What, what drew you to, um, to writing about saints? You said that um, the, the first one that you read was sort of the one that sort of got you started on this journey. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, the last time I was here... Um, one of the questions somebody asked me was, what's your next book? And I said, I'm going to write a book on Sarah Winchester. And I was so excited about it. And it was, it was really, really hard to do um, for a lot of reasons. And so while I was trying to write that book and not being able to and getting continually frustrated with that, um, I started writing these um, sort of weird essays um, that were just kind of something to make myself happy and some, something to entertain myself. And um, only by accident did I realize that I was writing a series. I, I, um, the, the first two were, were not just about saints, but they were about famous writers who masturbated to saints. Um, Yukio Mishima um, and St. Sebastian and uh, Flaubert and St. Anthony. And, and then I ran out of famous writers masturbating to saints. And <laughs> although if you guys know any more... <laughs> Um, and and so and so the the Lawrence one was the first uh, not overtly masturbatory thing I wrote. That was also like that was like okay, so you can do more than just talk about self pleasuring <laughs> and and so um, so that's kind of how it started. Almost by I mean they were sort of things that I was writing for myself as much as anything. But then um, then I started to see ways in which you could you could do this in a way that wasn't, um, you know, a, a, a religious book or an anti-religious book, and, and you could sort of enter into this conversation in various other ways. So that's how that happened, I think. So, Yes? Who gets to decide if a saint is the patron saint of the barbecue? Is that ever contested? Does anyone ever say, actually, not the patron saint of the barbecue, the patron saint of... Um, no, because it's, it, it's sort of like, I mean, the process to become a saint is, is in really rigid. Like, you, you know, like you have to, um, you have to be you ha in some incurable disease and you have to specifically pray to somebody who's not a saint and that's, and then you have to get better, um, to prove, like if you, if you are sick and you pray to John Paul II and to St. Catherine, this, it's a watch because then they'll just come and say, "Oh, that was Saint Catherine who healed you. It wasn't John Paul II." And so, like, so the, to become a saint is a really like they're like legal documents, um, and they have like like um, expert witnesses who provide um, the, literally the devil's advocate, the person who comes in and argues that somebody's not a saint. So Christopher Hitchens was the devil's advocate for um, Mother Teresa. He was like brought in by the church to be an asshole. <laughs> You know, and so, um, it didn't, I mean, what's that? She's not yet. She will be. Like, she's either beatified or blessed. I, f I think you start blessed, then you're beatified, then you're sainted. Anyway, so that process is crazy. The patronage is totally laissez-faire. Like, if everybody in the village is like, I mean, that's the Florentine cheese people. Like, we all pray to St. Bartholomew because of the cheese, you know, because he looks like he's spend like cheese you know then that's cool you know like that so that I, the process for specific and that's why you see saints with like 
800 million patronages. You know, I mean, like, usually a country will sort of all generally agree. Like, you couldn't show up in England and say, now, you know, St. Bartholomew is the patron saint of England because that's St. George's deal. Um, and, but, you know, for the most part, it's like if you can get enough people buying it, then it's usually okay. Um, yeah. So the, the how you count the saints sort of differs on your criteria. Um, and in 1969, as part of Vatican II, the, the church went through and um, kicked out a bunch of saints. Um, they, wanted a, they wanted only saints that they could verify actually had existed as historical figures. Um, so like St. Christopher, like the metal guy, not a saint. Yeah, um, I, I talk about St. Barbara, who's my favorite, like, saint who used to be a saint and now is not a saint. Um, but so there's, so, but then, like, St. George is, like, totally tenuous, and yet he survived because he's, like, yeah, because, yeah, the guy who killed a dragon was a real saint. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, so, so according to the, but, but even so, I mean, so there are, like, there are anywhere from, like, hundreds to, like, tens of thousands. You know, and there's so many, there's like some, like eight saints will have the same name, and though there's all these saints that like nobody really knows anything about, you know, and, the, and so whatever. So it's again, like the church has a very like definitive number of saints that they like put in the, in the church like calendar, and then every community's got like another 30, you know, that they like that, you know, like rural France towns that have been worshiping this guy for like 1,300 years, and there's nothing like, you know, the Vatican is going to say that's going to like take that away from them. So, um, the weirdest saint, I mean, there's a lot. I like Saint Foy a lot because she was really violent and mean, and um, and killed people who disagreed with her, um, even though she was this little 12-year-old virgin martyr. Um, she's really awesome. St. Foy, yeah, F-O-Y. Um, I like her a lot. I mean, I like Barbara, who's the saint of spontaneous combustion, and the person that, like, all, um, like, cannon, cannon, cannoneers, cannonades, whatever, like, the U.S. Artillery Association, the people who fire ballistic weapons, have a St. Barbara's Day ceremony every year because she's the patron saint of, of cannons and explosions. And so she's awesome. Um, so I don't, you know, they're like your children. You love each one of them in different ways. So, yeah. So, um, you said that you went to Jesuit school. Um, yeah. Are you a believer and have you heard that God is really pissed about your book? Um, I'm not a believer, so that answers the second question. Um, <laughs> I'm, no, I, I'm not a I'm not a believer, but I mean the 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 analogy that I make is that when I went to um, Milan and I went to the cathedral in Milan, which if any of you have been, it's like the third largest cathedral in the world, and it is huge and it is beautiful as all get out. I mean the the feeling that I have was, you know, my lack of belief in the deity that inspired this is is tempered by my admiration and the belief of the people who did believe in it, you know, and the people who built that. So I think there, there's a way in which you can still have this conversation that's not about, you know, yes or no belief or not belief, you know, and, and again, this is why I try to make this book not, it's not meant to be like a religion sucks and you guys are stupid. It's more like, you know, St. Radagund, whether or not she was divinely inspired by some 
almighty figure was still an amazing writer, you know, and the, and the work that she created is is just like jaw-breakingly beautiful. Wait, that's a bad adjective. Um, <laughs> it's really great. It's really she's a really good writer. So yeah, so yeah. Um, kind of haphazard and all over the place. Um, so I think that that, that um, anthropology qu quote about tricksters is the um, is the epigraph to a George Carlin book. Um, <laughs> I think I could say that without. <laughs> so. Um, so some things like that, other things painstakingly researched in, in many libraries throughout the world. Um, so um, uh, Debbie G. Sebald has this quote um, that I really like about um, how his research method was to go into a library as if it was closing in the next 10 minutes. And so he would run around sort of frantically grabbing things off the shelf in a really haphazard manner, um, but somehow always find what he was looking for. And I, I like to use that as a justification for really sloppy research methods. Like, I found what I needed sooner or later, so, yeah. I don't know if there's a patron saint of saints. Um, I created the shortlist because after a while, um, I just had to stop because there were so many others. You know, um, Saint Columba, who is the the first known sighting of the Loch Ness monster, um, is not in here. Um, Saint Cosmas and Damien, who uh, the patrons of surgeons who uh, transplanted a black Ethiopian's leg onto a white deacon. Um, <laughs> you know, the first. Um, uh, successful transplant, you know, like so. There's a lot of cool crap. There's the um, the patron saint of border crossers, Saint uh, John the Soldier, who uh, was a child rapist and murderer who was um, sentenced to death by firing squad, but they let him run. So, so they shot him in the back as he was running away. Um, and this is all in Tijuana, and then um, blood supposedly started welling up from his grave, and people became convinced erroneously that he was innocent when he was not. Um, and so they started revering this murderer as a saint. And even though he's not, the, the church is, wants nothing to do with this guy. And they keep like, like the, you know, there's this big shrine at his grave and the, like the local bishop keeps like clearing it out because it's really bad news. But you know, but you know, he's now when people are making illegal border crossings, he's who you pray on. Um, I don't even remember what your question was. Oh yeah, so there's a lot in there that I, I just like, I, after a while I was like, this will take me my lifetime, so yeah, yeah. What's interesting is how a lot of the saints are so marginal. So I was just curious about your, your thoughts on the relationship between the saint and the sacred, the sort of old notion of the sacred as being the person outside of the law. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of these, a lot of the figures historically were not necessarily good. Were not right. And they certainly weren't. Good. Right. So they operated outside the church, and then they become of the church and emblematic. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the saints um, and s some of the ones that I, a bit Radagund is a good example, someone who um, did horrible, horrible things to her body, um, you know, like would like heat up iron plates and then press them to her chest and stuff like that. And um, Catherine of Siena, I think, who um, starved herself to death. 
um, shoving um, branches down her throat, um, sort of anorexia, um, and how the 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 saint is really the person who has a love of death um, in a, in a really sort of profound way that is um, especially like the early saints like less so you know the past couple hundred years but those the the sort of post persecution saints who couldn't be martyred by the Romans um, sort of lived for death in this really bizarre way and 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 so they lived a kind of the kind of extreme of what was acceptable in ways that the church has later really like disavowed I think that you're not you know the the church's policy is really to adore and revere these people but not to emulate them in any way shape or form and um, Mary Gordon the the novelist has this great um, she was talking about how when she was a child how um, the uh, the the nuns would tell her and her um, like schoolmates when they were like seven or eight like you you should you should hope that someday the communists put a gun to your head and say deny God or we will shoot you so that then you could go to heaven and how she was horrified at this idea but that she would um, she would put broken glass in her shoes to to walk on broken glass so that she and it was, it was like a sort of it's like for her like kind of a half-ass martyrdom like she would put them in her shoes but then she would try not to step on them you know and so like this like so there's this really odd way in which like they you know like the 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 way in which the saints exist as this thing which is both um, uh, magical and wonderful, but but really sort of forbidden at the same time, and sort of not not really allowed in sort of a contemporary culture, which isn't obsessed with death in the way that that these people were. At least that's kind of my take on it. I don't know. Uh. Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they're fast tracking John Paul II and um, um, and Mother Teresa. Uh, they're trying to, uh, Benedict is trying to get the, the Nazi Pope uh, moved along because, you know, Benedict's kind of a Nazi too. Um, so that'll, that'll, yeah, the, the guy who, the guy who many historians um, fault as doing very little to uh, prevent mass uh, killings that he maybe could have done a little bit more, but now he's his saint. No, he's not yet, but he, he will be if Benedict sticks around long enough, so. Well, that's the thing that you know, and and apparently this is this is something. Um, apparently, the miracle, the best miracle, is that you cure Parkinson's. Um, this is a good way to go because Parkinson's is kind of an ambiguous disease in the first place. It's not like like your arm gets chopped off and then you regrow an arm. Like that's pretty severe. Like people would know that. But like maybe you have Parkinson's and then maybe it clears up and maybe you were praying to John Paul II while it was happening and so maybe, you know, so like, so, and, but again, it is a really long process and they send out like litigators and I've seen like the, the court transcripts which are like thousands of pages of, of just like all the interviews and, and like they try and make very sure that a genuine miracle happened and, and then you get, then you get your ticket punched. So, yeah. Well, I think it it takes it used to not take long. Obviously, if you were if you're martyred, you're straight in. Like you're good to go. Um, and 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 I don't know exactly when they changed the procedure, but I think the part of the problem was they were just making any old 
Joe a saint, you know, and I think at some point they wanted to establish some legitimacy and, and prove that these were genuine miracles that were happening. This wasn't some sort of folk nonsense that just because a bunch of illiterate peasants somewhere claimed somebody was a saint, you know, that did, you know, they tried to say, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna make this real. We're gonna make it rigorous. But, you know, obviously with somebody like Mother Teresa, they are trying to speed it up. So, yeah. Uh, no, again, I mean, that's what, no, that's what's really awesome is how random that is. Um, one of the things, like St. Sebastian with the arrows, like he didn't die from getting shot full of arrows. Like that's not, like he, he survived that. And it was only because there was like a couple um, sort of fresco cycles that casually omitted his actual moment of death in favor of the arrow thing that he beca everybody just assumes he was shot killed by arrows and stuff like that and so it was it was totally it's totally arbitrary it's totally happy i mean not, some more th so than others but it, it you know there's no you, who are you want to paint you want to paint cosmos and damien putting a black dude's leg on a white dude like you you go nuts you know like that's whatever makes you happy yeah yeah, but they don't conflict so much as like everybody gets everybody gets in. You can be both patron of cheese makers and patron of bakers, and it's cool. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. Like more the merrier. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, like whatever gets people to the church, I think is cool. You know, so yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. I saw them. I didn't actually. I wasn't going to read that shit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I don't. And, and again, I mean, I I know a lot of that stuff anecdotally, but I the the process to sainthood I, I probably didn't delve into as much as. Uh, and so, no, I, I'm sure that there are cases like that that exist where they sent somebody out, and you know, they came back saying, I don't know, this is pretty suspect, and you know, but but I, I can't name you a, a case offhand. I just would assume that that would have happened. Yeah, no, cool. So, did you? Oh yeah, yeah. The bodies should not decompose. So there's a lot of digging up of corpses. Yeah, exactly. And if you would like to learn more about grave robbing, um, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think they they um, they dug up Cardinal Mezzofonte's uh, body um, in the 1870s to see if it had corrupted. This is a um, Italian pre uh, cardinal who knew something like 50 to 75 different languages. Um, my friend Michael O'Rard wrote a book about him on hyperpolygots, but yeah, his head was stolen too. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, so they dig up the bodies to see if they're incorruptible. But again, it's like, what is, what's incorruptible to you? And to me, is just like good moisture control, you know? Like, it's sort of like, 
But yeah, there's a body, there's a saint in in New York City, like in Manhattan, who's on display and is in, and and is. Do you know who it is? Yeah, right. So you can totally see incorrupted bodies, if you want. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 There's there. Yeah. They have. There's some are overlapping, or they have different days, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it might be the Sarah Winchester book, although once again, that's might be that, might be something else. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully it'll be the Sarah Winchester book. So, yeah, yeah. When you were talking about the Native American, the army type, there are so many religions that work with gods and mm-hmm. And I thought. That's got to be related to the fact that, like, Catholicism, is the monotheistic religion, mm-hmm. and they're still building this pantheon of things to worship in a sense. Yeah. So do you feel like there's something to that in, like, the reason that people need saints? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly one of the the Protestant critiques of Catholicism is the fact that the 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 saints sort of almost make it a polytheistic religion. Um, for me, I mean, had had these people been actual gods, I think I would have been less interested because I think fundamentally what interests me about these people is that they were people. You know, they were people who, for whatever reason, were were sort of moved to to act in a in a specific, really extreme way. And and again, that's why like like Jesus is like almost nowhere in this book, for better or for worse, just because as as interesting and fascinating as a story that is, um, that's a story of a of a divine being that comes down to earth rather than somebody who is who is sort of totally and fully mortal and and lo- leads this life, you know. And so I so I think that, that what's really fascinating to me about the fact that these are these, as much as there is this kind of polytheistic, like in the almost like a sort of Hindu way of like you have your your local god that you would pray to and like that kind of thing, but you know, fundamentally they all started out as people, you know, and so I think that's really a compelling. For me, it was a compelling lens to try and understand these stories. So, yes, Ravi. Um, I tried to ask this question the other night and I tried to make more sense. Um, it, it seems to me that the reading that you Two, two that you hit, one that you read, one that you hinted at, and one that you, I did the other night. Um, it seems to be that you're reflecting in a way on literature by exploring these saints. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, why you would use saint, saints, the stories of the saints to reflect on literature. Um, partly because I, I, cause I, I generally thought with people like Teresa and like Gregory of Tours, like that there, there's a, there's almost a genre of like ecstatic writing and the way that one writes about uh, the divine that 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 you could probably parse out as sort of substantively different than you know literature. Um, but the flip side of that is the way in which literary figures write about. Saints in the same way, like I'm also drawn to like paintings, you know, I mean there's a lot of Caravaggio and De La Tour and stuff like that, like I'm, I'm really obsessed with how people choose to depict these figures and I find that to be um, another sort of fascinating thing. So I think those two together um, are, are kind of what drove this as a meditation, not just on these figures, but the, the representations of, so should we...
Cool. Thanks, thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.